Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. It's great to see all of you today. If uh, this is your first time at Grace Harvest Church, we, uh, church, what? Grace Harvest Church, we want to welcome you in the name of Jesus and let you know that we are genuinely glad, happy that you're here. And you may not realize it, but we've prayed for you. And so welcome in the name of the Lord. My name is Doug Sherman. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Harvest Church. And uh, I want to, uh, before I tell you what's going on this morning, I just want to tell you that we're going to be talking about sex today. Yeah, I know, right? We're, we're going to be doing a series. This is the first of several messages called Design, the Bible's Definition of Sexuality, Gender, and Marriage. And so we're going to be getting into some pretty hot topics and uh, I just want you to know that if you have any children here that you would feel that you don't necessarily want them to be in, in, in a service that's going to talk about those things, then this would be a good time to uh, come up with a new plan. <laughs> and, uh, and if, but I will tell you this, um, we are living in a culture that's sex-saturated. And so in light of the sex-saturation of the time that we live in, um, they're probably already hearing a lot of it anyway. So it's all about age-appropriate and all of that. Amen? So uh, I want to um, open up in prayer, as you can imagine. This is a topic with a lot of minefields, and, uh, and I don't want to step in it today. Amen? And I'd like you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the opportunity to look into the Scripture, to talk about our design, to talk about your heart for all of us in this room, every person here is precious to you, valuable to you, and beloved to you. And Lord, as we talk about how you created us to be and then what's gone wrong, how things have been broken, how your design has been marred, and how you are redeeming us, I pray that you would give me the ability to speak as I ought to speak with boldness and with clarity, with compassion, with love, with grace, all of those things, Lord. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been doing a series on our foundational beliefs as Christians, and uh, today we're going to kind of divert from it, but it actually is going to be based upon our, one of our beliefs. We have 15 beliefs as a church, and uh, we're going to deal with the 15th belief. We've skipped from number 10 down to 15. We felt like the month of February was a good time to do this because of Valentine's Day and all that, so that's why we're getting into this at this time. Uh, today we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches about sexuality, gender, and marriage, and uh, we're going to do our best to present this truth in the weeks ahead in a loving and balanced way. Uh, but I can tell you right off the bat, we won't be able to answer every question on these issues or be perfectly balanced. We'll sure try, but we're not going to be perfect. As we begin today, I want to set the stage with some statements. And these are statements to set the stage. So these are some things I want to say right off the bat as we get into the subject matter. The first one is... Our response as Christians, if you're here today and you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ and a believer in Jesus Christ, um, whether you call it a Christian or just a, a Christ follower, um, our response as Christians to all people everywhere at all times in all circumstances is to love them. Yeah. Amen? Uh, the two great commandments are to love the Lord our God with our whole being, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The fact that we're trying to faithfully follow God's design for our sexuality, gender, or marriage is never an excuse to mistreat people and be unloving. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something with me today as part 
as part of loving our neighbor, I'm going to ask you to refrain from any amens that could be used as a weapon or a jab. And what I mean by that is I've been in services where, you know, somebody will be talking about a hot topic and they'll say something that's kind of, you know, and people will be like, yeah, and what, or amen. And what they mean by that amen is, you know, you over there that don't believe this way, bam, a jab. And so what I'm going to say is, you know, if you're here and, and you have an amen that is affirmative in, in grace, then, then, you know, I don't want to hold that back. I, I actually shut down amens in the first service and it became almost impossible for me to do. I kept going, amen, oops, I mean, no, not that. I mean, <laughs> so anyway, I just want you to, to remember um, that there are people around us right here in this room. I'm sure there are people that are not going to agree with everything I say. And I want to say this to you if you're here today and, um, and you, don't, you, know, you don't align with what I'm teaching. W- will you at least hear me out and consider the fact that I'm doing this not because I have any hatred or not because I disagree uh, against you or I have an issue with you as a person, but because I'm just trying to follow Jesus as to the best of my ability of what I see in Scripture, and this is what I believe he has shown in Scripture. So um, the second point is to love people as Jesus did does not require us to affirm or support what people believe or how they live. Let me say that again. To love people as Jesus did does not require us to affirm or support what people believe or how they live. Jesus loved people with a passionate love when he walked the earth. He even loved his enemies passionately. However, he often rejected people's beliefs, their thinking, and their approaches to life. He's rejected my thinking, my choices, and my actions many times. I've been taken to the woodshed by Jesus. I've been challenged. I've been rebuked by him. I've been shown that something that I believe or the way I see something is wrong. And, uh, but it didn't mean he quit loving me at that moment. And so it doesn't require us to agree in order to love people. Um, it's a ridiculous notion that to love someone is to agree, affirm, and support what they believe and do. That's ridiculous. We, we couldn't have a society of any kind of open dialogue. There could never be a debate if, if love required that we always agree with everything everybody said. Number three, the Christian view of sexuality, gender, and marriage comes to us from Scripture, and therefore, because we believe Scripture has authority from God. Um, We believe the Bible is God's word, and we believe it is authority over all issues in life, even our sexuality. And I know sometimes this is an awkward thing to talk about in church, right? But the reality is we need to talk about this in church, because everywhere we look in society, it's being talked about. So what what is our response? Number um, four, the Christian view of sexuality, gender, and marriage has been consistently the same for over 2,000 years. When you study all the major branches branches of Christianity for the past 2,000 plus years, you hear one unified voice on sexuality, gender, and marriage. It's only recently that some churches and many individuals have changed all these definitions and have given us a a different view of things. And so, you know, if you look at uh, Christianity has three main branches to it, and then under those branches are many smaller branches. And the three main branches are Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. We would be under the branch of Protestantism. And when you look at all three of those in the writings of church fathers and people that come all the way from the time of the apostles, century after century after century, and I've dug into this, you see a unified voice. Uh, The view of God according to Scripture and according to the traditions of different Branches of Christianity has been the same. Even though we might believe on other things much differently, we've all held the same line on sexuality.
for 2,000 years. The purpose of this series is to primarily concern ourselves with those inside the church and not outside it. 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13 says this, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Do you judge those who, don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. What is Paul saying? Paul was dealing with a number of things that were going on in the church in Corinth, including a lot of sexual immorality. And when he was writing this letter, he was addressing that sexual immorality, and he was saying, listen, quit putting your finger in what's going on outside and deal with your own stuff. And so I just want to tell you something. We right here in this room, what we call the church, those of us who are believers in Christ, we got a lot of our own stuff. And it's one of the reasons that many times we're criticized. Because while we're yelling about sexual immorality in the world, we got a lot of it going on inside churches and even among leaders and priests and all of it. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt to be taken on by us. So Paul's saying, listen, get your own house in order. Clean your own stuff up. Don't worry about what's going on out there primarily. I want you to deal with what's going on in your own house and your own heart and your own life and your own home. Amen. So that, uh, that takes me to our belief. And I just want to read our belief. And, and our belief uh, has actually three sections we're going to be dealing with. I'm only going to have you read section number one. It's the uh, first two belief statements on the issue of sexuality. And so it's the Bible defines sexuality, gender, and marriage. And here's what it says. We believe that God wonderfully and immutably, the word immutably means uh, something that's unchanging. So God creates something that doesn't change. We believe that God wonderfully and immutably creates each person as male and female, male or female. These two distinct complementary genders together reflect the image and nature of God. Rejection of one's biological sex is a rejection of the image of God within that person. We believe that the term marriage has only one meaning, the uniting of one natural-born man and one natural-born woman in a single exclusive union as delineated in Scripture. So today we're just going to look at this particular section and uh, when, when, uh, when the Bible talks about and when God speaks about in Scripture, uh, marriage, gender, sexuality, he always goes back to, even Jesus did this, he always goes back to original intent or design. So the way we go forward is we have to go back to the beginning and we have to look at the creation event and what God originally said right in the beginning of time and we have to understand God's design Okay, we have to understand his heart and his design. So I, I want to illustrate this this morning by just, this is a crude illustration, and I know all illustrations eventually break down, but, you know, we have a, a two-by-four, a piece of two-by-four here with a couple of nails in it, and we know that this is a hammer, and this hammer was designed to nail nails into boards, right? We know that. And you can tell by its design. Those two things fit and they match. And, and if I take this hammer and I try to get it to um, become a vessel that can contain liquid so I can drink out of it, you know, I'll pour a little bit of water on it, I pour a little bit of water on it, and now, you know, I got two or three drops, but it, it was ineffective because it was operating against its design, its original intent. Sorry, it's in my beard. Uh, and, and in the same way, if I take, and this is a plastic little cup, a little plastic wine glass. I, I considered getting glass, and then I thought I'd get up there and cut myself open, and we'd be bleeding all over the place. And, but it, this would not be an effective hammer at all. And if I began to, you know, try to nail this in, oh, no. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it because I'm going against its design. Um, in, in the same way, 
Now, now some people will say, well, you don't understand. We can make it work. We can make it work. I know that, I know that maybe that's not the way things were, but, but things have changed, and we're in a new season. We're in a new age, a new, a new time, and we can make it work. And in the same way, you know, I can make this. This is a metal coffee mug, a travel mug, and I can make it work. I mean, I can take it here, and I can... And look, it's working. But ironically enough, over time, it's bent and it's damaged. And that's what happens when we go against God's design. We hurt things. We break things. We bend things. We twist things. And, and so today I want to talk about how God designed us originally, what his original intent was, what went wrong, and how Jesus is redeeming it. And again, we're only opening this can of worms this week, and we're going to be talking about it in the weeks ahead, and others are going to be speaking on it as well. Uh, so we're not able to get through everything today, and I'm sure we're going to provoke a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts, but let's get right into the first text of Scripture, and this is my key text for today. This is Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. So if you have your own Bible, you can follow along there, or you can look on the screen, and it says here, some Pharisees approached him to test him. Now, let me tell you who the Pharisees were. They were a sect of Judaism that existed at the time that were the strictest sect of Judaism. They were the ones that were known for keeping the commandments better than anyone else, and they were proud of it. And they continually resisted Jesus. They continually gave Jesus difficulty, and they came to him to test him. And they asked him this. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? And Jesus doesn't take them to the law of Moses. He takes them to the initial creation. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, before I... I comment on this. I want to give a little bit of background because I think it's important. At the time that Jesus came on the scene in Israel, there were a couple of different schools where rabbis were trained, rabbinic schools. And those schools had begun to really interpret the scripture very loosely so that they could do what they wanted to do. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> right? And uh, as they did, one of the things that, they, that one of the rabbinic schools was teaching was that a man could basically put his wife away with a certificate of divorce for anything that he wanted to put her away for that didn't please him. So if she, this is, this is we actually have writings that confirm this. If she burned his dinner or didn't cook it to his liking, divorce, if he wanted to. And typically what that meant was a, a, a man might have his eye on another woman, but he didn't want to quote-unquote commit adultery so in order to get the other woman, he had to come up with a reason to divorce his wife. And uh, the other thing that was going on at the time is even if, some of the rabbis wrote, even if a woman is no longer pleasing to him to look upon, he can put her away. Now let me tell you why that's a huge problem for women. First of all, that culture was much different than our culture. Like, if people get divorces or go through broken relationships now, even if you're a single mom or a single dad, the thing, especially for women, a single mom, you have the ability, if you need to, it'll be a struggle, it'll be difficult, but you can go out and get a job. 
You can go back to school. You can do a number of things. It'll be difficult. It'll be a sacrifice. But you have the ability to take care of a family. But in that time, if a woman was put away by her husband, there were no opportunities in the culture. Women were not being educated. They were only educated up to a certain age. They couldn't go out and get a job in, in a marketplace. They couldn't go work construction. They couldn't do any of the things that women can do now. All they could do, unfortunately and sadly so often, especially if they were going to take care of children, was become prostitutes. And then what would happen is because society forced them into prostitution, um, the religious leaders who were given the okay to put them away now rejected them because they were forced by society. So you can see this was evil. And Jesus is addressing that specific issue. So that's the text and the context. But I want you to notice that he deals with a much broader thing. When he's dealing with human relationships, marriage and sexuality, he deals with them in the context of the original intent. So the principle, though he's specifically answering this question, the principle is a much broader principle. And the, point, the first thing that Jesus does, as I've said already four or five times, is he points us back to God's original design for marriage. Verse 4 says, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? While the context, as I said, is about something different, the original overall view and intent is to take us back to God's design for us. And what is he referring to? He's referring to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I want you to look at verses 26 through 28 in Genesis 1 with me. This is in the New Living Translation. It says here, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. Now look what it says. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Genesis 2, verses 20 through, 22 through 25. Genesis 2, verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Okay, so we see here two different accounts of the creation of male and female. And this is what's beautiful. The original design of God was that the male and the female together reveal the image and likeness of God. So let's be clear about something. When we think about God, though we call him Father, don't get this idea that God's this male, Right? The, the scripture, God is much more than can be defined by mere gender roles or sexuality. God is the, he's the embodiment of all the characteristics and the qualities that make men and women unique. And so we see the image of God portrayed in the unique distinctions between male and female. So when we talk about God's nurturing, gentle, kind, whatever, when we talk about different qualities and attributes, those qualities and attributes show us different things that exist within the different sexes. But God is 
is like above and beyond all of that, right? But when we see God creating, he, what's he create? To show forth the world what his image and his likeness is like and his characteristics are like. He makes a man and he makes a woman in distinct roles. The original design, according to the text here, of sexuality was for a couple of things. The first thing was for male and female to procreate other people in God's image. God created the woman out of the man. And the Hebrew term for rib, uh, there's a little more to it than that. It's like he took a part. He took a compartment. So he took an, an element of the man and formed her into a woman brought her to the man, and, uh, and out of that, he brings them together, and then he encourages them to be one again through the sexual union, and he created marriage between one man and one woman to create a new family unit to reproduce his image in the earth, because God wants a big family, and ideally, it takes both sexes in the marriage union to create a healthy family that models God's personhood. So the ideal, the original intention, we understand a lot went wrong and a lot was broken. But the original intention, design, and desire of God was that man and woman would come together in the marriage union and procreate and create children. And the, the image and likeness of God would be spread in the earth and people would see what God is like. Amen? You can say amen there. That's a positive amen. Okay. And then next, the original design of sexuality was for male and female to experience the joy of becoming one flesh. God created sex within marriage between the man and the woman so they could become one flesh and experience the joy and ecstasy of being one. This oneness is the physical complement to oneness with God. The word to know God in the Bible, in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, is the same word that's used when a man and woman know each other sexually. So what sex does is it shows us something physically that exists spiritually in our union with God when we're reconciled with God and we're one with God and we're experiencing intimate relationship with God. That same physical thing is a picture of the spiritual union that we have with God himself. And let me say this, um, a lot of times Christians and Christianity get a bad rap that somehow God, we, 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 somehow people believe we teach that God is like a bummer. God's a killjoy. God doesn't want people to have fun in sex. And I could tell you, biblically, nothing could be further from the truth. God wants people to enjoy sex. Why do you think he gave us the nerve endings he did? Come on, you can, you, you don't, don't get all stiff on me now. <laughs> right? I mean, God made things feel good, and he gave us joy, and he gave us pleasure in sexuality, and it was there in that union between a man and a woman in the confines of that marriage relationship that God wanted us to celebrate one another, to discover one another, to laugh and enjoy each other, and, and to experience the ecstasy of all the things that sexuality brings us. And sexuality like so many things, is powerful. Like fire is powerful. And water is powerful. And if you take water and you take fire and you put them in a proper context and you put them along inside of proper boundaries, they can warm your house and cook your food and wash your clothes and, and give you something to drink. They become a powerful thing within the boundaries that nature and we put around them, but if they're allowed to just go, 
they become destructive. And if you think about it, and this is going to be the next point I'm going to get into, sexuality is beautiful and powerful, but also very destructive. And I'm going to get into that. I'm going to make the point that probably most of us in this room have had something happen in our life. Not all of us, but probably most of us in this room have experienced things sexually that deeply wounded, broke, bent, did something to us, and we live with broken sexuality. And so let's get into that. What happened? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, marriage and sex were broken. Something happened. Theologians call it the fall. And we're all dealing with the consequences of the fall. Every person in this room is, whether we realize it or not. You want to know what's wrong with our world? The fall. You want to know what's wrong on planet Earth and why even the very soil breaks up and why people die tragically, why disease runs rampant, why wars happen, all of it. I know we try to sometimes give God the rap, but it's because of the fall. It's because of human rebellion. It's because creation isn't right. It's broken. And we're at the center of that. So I want you to notice that right off the bat, when man and woman disobeyed God, partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, were deserved by the, deceived by the serpent. And, and you know, there, there are Christians across a, a huge spectrum. Some say, you know, this is an actual event that happened. Others say it's metaphoric. The reality is, is something in our forebears went deeply wrong and they disobeyed God and they were in rebellion to God and that caused creation to fall and it caused them to fall. Fear, shame, and pain came into our sexuality almost from the beginning. So right after they partook and sin happened, we see this in Genesis 3, verses 10 and verse 16. Look what it says, verse 10. And this is God and Adam talking, and, and man and woman have fallen into sin, and they've now fled from God. And God says, Adam, where are you? And God didn't say, Adam, where are you? Because he didn't know where he was. God said, Adam, where are you? So he could point out to Adam that Adam was lost. Okay, so we see it in verse 10, and he said, Adam's response to God, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now, you need to know something. Before that moment, Adam wasn't afraid of God. There was no fear, but now he's afraid. They've sinned. They've disobeyed. And so the first thing that happens is fear, right? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked, so I hid so we see immediately fear and shame came into their sexuality. And then it says in verse 16, And God turned to the woman and said, I'll intensify your labor pains and you'll bear children with painful effort. So pain came in to our sexuality, the process that comes through sexuality, right? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned, they set in motion terrible consequences that continue to affect us all. One area of our nature that became broken and distorted is our sexuality. To some degree, all of us are broken sexually, and the gospel of Jesus is what can heal and fix our broken sexuality. You might not realize it, but somewhere in your life, your sexuality is broken, Somewhere in your life, and when I say broken, listen, I don't mean beyond repair, but I mean we're not the way God originally intended us to be, and that's what's wrong with our planet and with our lives. God made things perfect. He made them complete, and sin came in and distorted and twisted and broke them, and so we're all, you know, the recipient of that. If I could do an instantaneous poll right here, and then we could throw up the, um, 
the responses to that poll, I would probably find a really high percentage of you had something in your life, have had something in your life broken sexually. Whether it's pornography addiction, adultery, um, you were molested as a child. You, you know, I, when I was eight years old, I was molested. I was molested by a man on our block that molested a bunch of boys and did terrible things to us. And I had to grapple with that. I, and I had other things happen in my childhood. And so I, I grew up, you know, with my sexuality twisted. And then I came to Christ and I had this profound, profound conversion. And Jesus made himself real to me. And I thought, you know, everything's new and everything's forgiven and everything's cleansed. And I began to realize as soon as I started moving forward in my walk with Christ, and then especially once I got married, and I started dealing with my marriage and my wife, I started realizing that we all, that we both have broken sexuality. And a lot of the stuff that happened to me as a child, now I had to grapple with it in my marriage relationship. It came out there. And every one of us in this room, to some degree, you have stories, you've been through things, you've seen things, something has happened to you, and your view of sexuality is not perfect, it's not totally complete, and it's affected all of us to some degree. C.S. Lewis makes this point on how our sex drive has gone wrong. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage, and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just as the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a piece of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone right with the appetite for food? There's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the, mo the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. Think about that. Peggy was pointing out, well, that's actually what's happened on Instagram. We're all taking pictures of our food. <laughs> right? Food porn. We even have a term for it. Right? I mean, think about it. But see, when sin spread, what the Bible teaches is that, and different theologians have called it different things. Uh, Augustine called it original sin. Um, but but w what seems to have happened is that when Adam and Eve sinned, Death began to work in them, and through them, sin spread. And so it spreads to all of us. We're not what we were originally intended to be. Elements of it, absolutely, but not completely. And we all know that because we get sick, we break down, and we die. And when God made Adam and Eve, he didn't intend them to die. And so we see the reality that we all live with sin and its consequences. Right? Okay, so let's continue here. So when sin spread, so did our broken sexuality. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death, death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Sin spreads from one generation to another. Redemption and salvation also come as people are conceived and come into the world. Jesus' followers also bring redemption and salvation to the world. So this is the beautiful thing about our sexuality. Sexuality has the potential to spread both sin and salvation, death and life, brokenness and healing into our world. When God wanted to save the world, what did he do? He became one of us. How did he do it? He was conceived in the womb of a virgin named Mary. And then was born of a virgin, 
lived a sinless life, but went through all the processes of growth and development within the womb that every single one of us do. And that was God's way, in effect, of reversing the curse and beginning to turn back our broken sexuality and make things right. And think about how broken sexuality has affected all of us. I mean, think about the pain in our world. Think about the struggles in our world. How much of it is a result of sexuality gone wrong? Right? Every time a child is conceived and then aborted. And again, this is no condemnation to anybody. But think, just for, like if you just look at it logically, when a baby is conceived and begins to grow in the womb, that should be the safest place in the world for a child to grow until the day of birth. But instead, we invade that space and we kill children in the womb. And we say it's a right. And it's not a right to kill somebody else. Right? It's not even a right to kill ourselves. That's self-murder. God, suicide's not even okay in the sight of God. Right? No murder is. I can't kill you. You shouldn't kill me. I shouldn't kill myself. And I shouldn't kill a baby within the womb. But we see abortion as even sexuality gone wrong. And we see what happens when adulterous relationships happen. And they tear parents apart. And they tear homes apart. And we see all the pain that happens through these things. But let me make this clear. Even though those things are the reality and they exist... Jesus Christ is the answer to them. So I, I know, like as I'm talking, I know some of what I'm saying is going bam, 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 bam. It's hitting people. The goal of God is not for you to be condemned. The goal of God is for you to go, yeah, that's true. Lord, I, I, I need healing. Forgive me. I want to be restored. Take me on a journey to restore me and make me a new kind of person. Heal my sexuality. Heal the brokenness of it. See, in our time, it's really sad. And, and in the statement I read earlier, part of our broken sexuality, just one area, and I've mentioned multiple, you know, sexual, uh, I've mentioned multiple things. I've talked about the fact that adultery exists and, and, and fornication and pornography and all these areas that have become just acceptable parts of our culture now. It's all normal. I mean, just do whatever you want. Do whatever you feel as long as there's consenting adults. And, and you can. You can do whatever you want. But the reality is, is you're going to live with consequences because you're breaking your design. You're the wine glass that's trying to be a hammer. It doesn't work. It's going to break you. And there are going to be sad consequences. And that's the reality for all of us. We're going to experience the pain because we're going against the way God made us to be. And that includes even rejecting our biological sex or our gender or feeling like we're, you know, we're, we're not the person that's in this body. God has answers for it. I know they're complex and it might take your entire lifetime, but he still has something different for you. And that takes me to my, my wrap-up because I'm going to tell you what, if I end right here, that'd be a bummer. Wouldn't, it? Wouldn't that be a bummer? Here's the reality. In Christ, God restores people to their design their original design. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. When a person belongs to Christ, Christ makes every part of them new. Now, now let me just say this. It might take your whole life. And it might take a lot of falls on the way. And this is where I really have compassion because, you know, this isn't God saying, I want you to instantly change everything about the way you've ever thought about yourself and life and your belief system. He's not, he doesn't say that to us. He says, I'm ma I've made you new, I'm making you new, and I will make you new. Yeah. 
And so what happens? A person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they begin to follow him and walk with him. But along the way, we stumble, we fall. And he just wants us to get back up and run to the cross and embrace his mercy and his grace and his love because he loves us so, so much. Some of us, we, we've had things done to us that are unimaginable. I've sat with people over the years that have told me stories that I wept and my heart broke. And at the end, I didn't have answers. I didn't say, well, what you need to do is this, that, and the other thing, and you'll be put back together and everything will be fine. Many times all I could do is weep with them and say, I'm so sorry, and I, I don't have answers for that other than you are beloved of God. And God's patient with you, and He's going to walk with you through this. And it might take all of your life, but He loves you so much. And He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to quit on you. So, secondly, when a person belongs to Christ, he removes the shame of all of the past, and he makes us new. When he makes us new, it doesn't mean that he necessarily even removes desires and temptations. It means he's with us through them, and he teaches us to trust him in our weakness. So, I want to tell you today, no matter where your sexuality has been broken, if you've been the victim of sexual abuse, if you've gone into some things that, you know, that you are now going, huh, I don't know. And, and, and you might even be here today and violently disagree with me. And I want to tell you that if, if that's true, um, I, I, I want you to know that I have nothing personal against you. I love you. And I, I can say that, honestly. I know that I do. But God wants to restore us and take us on a journey toward wholeness and newness. Amen? And he wants to start right now by us just saying, Lord, I, I need to be healed. I need to be restored. You know, many times when Jesus healed people, he knew what their issue was. He met the man at the pool of Bethesda the man at the pool of Bethesda is lame. He can't walk. He's trying to get to the pool because he thinks if he can get in the pool and he can wash, he'll be healed. And Jesus comes up to him and he, it's obvious what he needs. And Jesus asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And, and you know, if I'm that man, I might be a little bit insulted. I might say, what do you mean, what do, you, what do I want you to do for me? Can't you, I mean, hello? But he doesn't. He says, Lord, I want to walk, but I can't get into the pool unless somebody carries me over there. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk, because I'm the pool. I'm the healer. Amen? And he's here to heal us as well. Will you stand to your feet with me? Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org.